National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, August 9th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. You may have heard the news over the past two and a half years about the situation in the Tigray region of northern Ethiopia and the war that has raged there. However, if you, if you haven't heard about it, I, I wouldn't be that surprised. Media coverage of the civil strife inside Ethiopia has been sporadic at best, in part because the Ethiopian government shut down access to the region. And unfortunately, Africa rarely makes headlines in U.S. or Western news media outlets. As a career intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy, I'm sort of hardwired to remain vigilant for global situations that erupt into open conflict. I noted the unraveling of the situation in Ethiopia, and I realized that so much of the progress that had been made in East Africa in recent years, and Ethiopia in particular, which for years was the fastest-growing economy on the continent, was unraveling. This will be our guest's second visit to National Security this week, and I can promise you the next hour will be fascinating, insightful, and probably heartbreaking as well. Steve Andreasen is a national security consultant to the Nuclear Threat Initiative and its Global Nuclear Policy Program in Washington, D.C., he teaches courses on national security policy and crisis management in foreign affairs at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Steve served as Director for Defense Policy and Arms Control on the U.S. National Security Council at the White House from February of 1993 to January of 2001. He was the Principal Advisor on Strategic Policy, Nuclear Arms Control, and Missile Defense to the National Security Advisor and the President. During the George H.W. W. Bush and Reagan administration, Steve served in the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Political Military Affairs and the Bureau of Intelligence and Research, dealing with a wide range of defense policy, arms control, nuclear weapons, and intelligence issues. As a presidential management fellow, he served as a special assistant to Ambassador Paul Nisi in the U.S. State Department, focusing on the strategic arms reduction talks, and as a foreign policy and defense legislative assistant in the office of U.S. Senator Al Gore, Jr., he received his Bachelor of Arts from Gus Davis Adolphus College in 1984 and earned his Master of Arts from the Humphrey School in 1986. His articles and opinion pieces have been published in Foreign Affairs, The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, The Minneapolis Star Tribune, The St. Paul Pioneer Press, The Boston Globe, and many other outlets. Steve Andreessen, welcome back to National Security This Week. John, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be back in Northfield. I'm glad you made the drive down to join me in studio this morning. Thank you. <laughs> we had you back on, back on the show, uh, in, in, or we had you on the show, I should say, in March. Uh, we had a fantastic discussion about the U.S. National Security Council staff and really how foreign policy is developed and implemented in support of uh, American national security interests. Uh, we also talked at some length about different crisis areas around the world, and you had mentioned the war uh, in Ethiopia on that show back in, in March, and we talked about it more when, when we went off the air. You clearly have a passion uh, for following the situation in Tigray and, and Ethiopia in general, and, and clearly some expertise uh, in the various crisis issues plaguing the nation of Ethiopia. Uh, what has captured your attention so much about, about, about this region that you follow the events in Tigray? John, again, thanks for having me. Uh, this war in Tigray uh, began on November 3, 2020, uh, which was the day of our last presidential election. 
I began hearing about the war almost immediately from Tigrayans I know in Minneapolis. Uh, the Twin Cities has one of the largest Ethiopian populations in the United States. And I've had students from East Africa in my classes at the Humphrey School for many years now. Uh, within a few days after the war began, I actually reached out to a former National Security Council staff colleague of mine uh, during the Clinton era, a gentleman by the name of John Prendergast. Mm -hmm. And John was the AFRA director back then and currently heads an organization called The Century, uh, which works to expose leaders and networks uh, who profit from conflict in Africa today. I asked John about how to support credible aid organizations that might be working in Tigray and heard from him that the aid agencies that uh, had been working in the region had been shut down by the Ethiopian government as part of their war effort to cut off the Tigray region. So two things were clear literally right from the start of this conflict. Uh, first, the decision by Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, to launch a war against his own people in Tigray would have tragic uh, and unanticipated consequences, uh, most immediately, of course, for the people of Tigray, but uh, really for all of Ethiopia. And second, I was horrified, but sadly not surprised, by the U.S. government's indifference. Uh, President Trump, uh, as I mentioned, uh, after the U.S. election in November of 2020, was totally preoccupied uh, with his efforts to stay in power. Uh, and our government was literally paralyzed. And I suspect that's actually one reason why Abiy Ahmed chose November 3, 2020, uh, to launch his offensive against Tigray. He believed the U.S. Uh, would not respond during a transition uh, or post-election period from one administration to the next. Uh, but perhaps even more surprising, uh, that indifference carried over into the administration of Joe Biden. Uh, and we were not alone, I should add. Uh, most of the rest of the world watched uh, as the war evolved into the largest and most deadly war of the 21st century. It's larger and even more deadly uh, than the war in Ukraine uh, that we've heard so much about uh, for the past 18 months. You know, that's a war that's been in the news every day, mm -hmm. uh, literally. And the Tigray War, which, according to the U.S. government and other governments and human rights organizations uh, involving war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and, in my judgment, genocide, uh, received almost no attention for two years. Yeah. How do you study the events, uh, policy, the politics, and, and, and related topics in Ethiopia? I mean, you're not there, uh, so you have to turn to, to resources to figure these things out. Uh, maybe even studying Eritrea as well, because that, that country play, plays a heavy role in this whole situation. Uh, what's your methodology and what resources do you use to sort of study this issue? I mean, you, you did intelligence at INR at State. Uh, we, you know, we sort of come from the same background in that in that regard. We have to look for for resources to educate ourselves on these topics. No, it's a great question. As I mentioned, the Ethiopian government imposed a total blockade on the Tigray region beginning in November 2020. Uh, aid organizations were forced to leave. Internet and banking services were totally severed, uh, and reporters were forbidden access. So understanding what was happening on the ground was challenging. 
which is what the Ethiopian government was really counting on to try and cover up their methods, uh, many of which were both criminal and immoral. Uh, I've relied on really three sources of information uh, for most of the past three years. Uh, first, conversations with the Tigrayan diaspora. Uh, of course, they too were starved for information, but they were better informed than most. Uh, secondly, my former NSC colleagues, uh, I mentioned John, uh, but also the National Security Advisor during the Clinton administration, uh, that is the first-term National Security Advisor, Tony Lake, who worked with John to end the 1998-2000 war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, uh, and for years was the Executive Director of UNICEF mm -hmm. uh, with extensive experience in the region. Thirdly, Twitter. Um, really? Throughout the war, individuals and experts began posting on Twitter, and social media was a crucial source and battleground uh, of information. Uh, I should add that there were a few reporters uh, and new news organizations who did their best to cover the war. Uh, Declan Walsh at the New York Times, uh, Cara Anna at, at the Associated Press, uh, they provided you know, early and consistently good reporting. But, you know, one point I want to make, John, to your listeners, despite the Ethiopian government's efforts from the beginning to obscure the facts, it was really clear within weeks that Eritrean troops were in Tigray, that Ethiopian and Eritrean forces and Amar militia who joined them in their offensive had killed hundreds of civilians within the first few weeks and months of the war, uh, executed former uh, Tigrayan leaders. And that ethnic cleansing of Tigrayans was underway in, in western Tigray. Um, so all of that was apparent. Did, did, did you happen to catch any coverage on, uh, on Al Jazeera? Uh, to, to me, when I watch, I, I, you know, I, we talked about intelligence sources, you know, as intelligence professionals, where do we get our sources? I have found that Al Jazeera reporting is, is actually very, very good. Did you catch any reporting on Al Jazeera? Glad you raised it because the short answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, they were one of the news organizations. Uh, along with a few others, uh, The Guardian uh, actually did some uh, uh, sustained coverage. Uh, so there were some foreign outlets who actually did uh, provide some good coverage of what was happening. Uh, why, why is it that you think the situation in Ethiopia gets so little media coverage in America and, and the West in general. And I could ask the same of Sudan, since the Civil War has kind of fallen off uh, the media's radar. But let's stick with Ethiopia for right now. Well, I'll state the elephant in the room first, race. Uh, it's a sad fact that in much of the Western world today, a war that kills hundreds of thousands of people in black Africa receives far less attention than a war at the center of Europe. Uh, so I think race is a factor. Uh, secondly, geography. Uh, as a point of comparison, the Ukraine war taking place in the heart of Europe is much easier for reporters and news organizations to access uh, and cover. And third, I think the media is really mimicking Western governments and their assessment that the war in Ukraine is worthy of greater resources, uh, attention, uh, than a war in Africa because it seemingly uh, matters more to Western national security interests. For our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting kind of Northfield, Minnesota. 
this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Steve Andreessen from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, and we're discussing the situation in East Africa and specifically in Ethiopia. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Steve, I, I suspect all of us who are uh, who are listening to this show right now would benefit from a, just a little historical background on Ethiopia, Eritrea, and, and the Tigray region. Uh, could you sort of tell us a little bit more about this relationship that exists between the two countries and, the, and specifically the, re, the northern region of Ethiopia that is Tigray? Uh, the ethnic diversity, cultural differences, other unique aspects uh, that make this region of the world special. I do this with some humility. It's an incredibly complex oh, sure. nation and region. Yeah. Uh, the Tigray region is in northern Ethiopia. Uh, it is landlocked between the rest of Ethiopia in the south and east, most immediately the Amara and Afar regions, and then Eritrea to the north and Sudan to the west. Geographically, these countries are in what is a strategically vital space uh, located between the Red Sea and North Africa, uh, Saudi Arabia and other Persian Gulf states, Egypt, Somalia, and Israel. uh, They're all in this neighborhood. Uh, Ethiopia is the second most populous nation in Africa, uh, around 120 million people, John, Mm. from over 90 ethnicities, uh, the diversity that I spoke of. Uh, Tigray makes up only 6% of the population, uh, about 7 million. Uh, Eritrea to the north has about uh, three and a quarter million. Hmm. So the people of Eritrea and Tigray have a shared language, Tigrinya, and of course, a little over 30 years ago, when Eritrea was still part of Ethiopia, they were uneasy allies uh, in their struggle against what was a communist-backed dictatorship known as the DERG that governed Ethiopia between 1974 to 1991. Could you talk a little bit about the events that led up to Eritrea's independence from Ethiopia? I mean, that was that was not a, a peaceful transition. Uh, and then the struggles that have been visited on the region really since the early 1990s. Yeah, well, 1991 is really a good point of departure Uh, For 17 years leading up to that, Ethiopia was governed by a military junta backed by the Soviet Union. Uh, During that time, the country was really wrecked by poor governance, political violence. You may remember the historic famine that gripped Ethiopia then, uh, all of which fed opposition movements within the country. At the core of that opposition were Eritrean separatists and Tigrayan opposition groups, most notably the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or the TPLF. Together, they entered Addis, the capital of Ethiopia, in 1991. Uh, The leader of the Derg, by the way, fled. He was granted asylum in Zimbabwe, uh, where he's still living in exile today. Hmm. A new government was formed uh, under the umbrella of the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, or EPRDF. Now, the chairperson of the EPRDF and the TPLF was a gentleman by the name of Melis Zanawe, and he would go on to lead Ethiopia for 21 years uh, until his death in 2012. Now, after the Derg was defeated in 1991... Eritrea would go on to vote for independence in 1994. Its first and only president since 1994 is the man who led the Eritrean war against the Derg 
SAS Afawerki. And SAS, over the past 30 years, has developed one of the single most oppressive regimes in the world. Uh, now, these former, as I say, uneasy allies against the Derg, Mellis, and SAS, uh, well, they did not go on to live side by side in peaceful <laughs> harmony. Uh, most notably, they fought a border war between 1998 and 2000 that killed around 100,000 people. Uh, that's 100,000. Uh, and fed the bad blood between Eritrea and the TPLF. Twenty years later, uh, that hostility between former allies, again, uh, between Eritrea's SAS and the TPLF, uh, led SAS to join forces with Abiy Ahmed uh, after he came to power in 2018 as the new Ethiopian prime minister, and they worked together to try and crush the TPLF in Tigray. So, if I understand it, if I remember correctly, didn't uh, didn't Abiy Ahmed didn't he receive the Nobel Peace Prize for ending the war with Eritrea? He did. Uh, very shortly after he became prime minister in 2018, uh, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for reaching out to Isis in Eritrea and ending the long-standing conflict uh, between Ethiopia and Eritrea uh, that had arisen from the 1998-2000 border war and continuing disputes uh, about the settlement that ended the war uh, in 2000. Uh, but uh, what is now clear uh, in retrospect is that not only did he reach out to SIS uh, about the border conflict, uh, he reached out to SIS about how they might work together uh, to crush ESIS's historic enemy, the TPLF, and establish Abiy's uh, control uh, with the TPLF sidelined. Uh, and, you know, that's part of the sad history of the region. So it's almost like the, uh, the Nobel uh, Committee didn't quite see the writing on the wall for why uh, Abiy Ahmed— uh, is, is it Abiy Ahmed or Ahmed Abiy? Abiy Ahmed. Abiy Ahmed. Uh, for why he was reaching out to his neighbor to the north. Well, I think if the Nobel Committee could do it over again, they, would, they, probably uh, award it they would not award the Nobel Peace Prize to Abiy Ahmed, uh, given what we know now. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, uh, they wanted to see something uh, that wasn't there, uh, and uh, it's been sadly proven Uh you know, Abiy Ahmed is not uh, a, how should I say, a deserving recipient of that honorable award. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about, just about Eritrea, and then we'll, we'll come back to Ethiopia. Uh, what has been their extent of the involvement in, in the, in the uh, Civil War, the war in Tigray? And maybe give us a sense of the situation in Eritrea itself. Well, as I mentioned, Eritrea is uh, a one-man show today. Uh, it's not a show that anybody wants to be in uh, or to necessarily see. Uh, SIS rules Eritrea with the proverbial iron fist. Um, he runs a police state uh, where the population is subject to forced labor and conscription. Uh, there are widespread restrictions on basic freedoms. Uh, there's no legislature. Uh, no independent civil society organizations, no independent media or judiciary. Uh, 
Now, with respect to the war in Tigray, uh, as I said, SAS was really a co-conspirator and participant from the start with Abiy Ahmed. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there were credible reports of Eritrean troops on the ground in Tigray uh, that emerged as early as the first month of the war. Mm. Uh, Abiy and SAS denied it for months, uh, but Abiy... Uh, three or four months into the conflict, admitted that, you know, Eritreans were present uh, in Tigray. So uh, during that time, uh, Eritrean troops have committed numerous war crimes and crimes against humanity in Tigray. Uh, That includes mass executions, uh, rape as a weapon of war, uh, while looting anything they could steal uh, from Tigray in the process. Uh, It should be noted, John, that they remain in Tigray today, despite the cessation of hostilities agreement that was signed by the TPLF and the Ethiopian government uh, late last year in Pretoria. (laughs) An agreement, by the way, that they were not a party to. uh, That is the Eritreans. Okay. This is is far more complex (laughs) of a situation than I was anticipating when... uh, when I invited you back on the show to talk specifically about this, uh, let's let's kind of delve a little bit more deeply into the Ethiopia and, and Tigray uh, situation. Now, Tigray being a it's a, a province, is that right? Uh, just the northern province of Ethiopia. So it's one of the uh, federal regions of Ethiopia, of which there are uh, nine, uh, with a couple of cities that also, you know, are part of that federal structure that was created. Uh, by the constitution that was established after the dirt. Okay. And the the nine uh, kind of federal regions, are they dominated by certain ethnic groups? I mean, you talked about, what, the 90-some ethnic groups in, in Ethiopia. Uh, do certain ethnic groups, because of the size of that group, have more dominance in any particular federal area? Yeah, I mean, the constitution really enshrined ethnic federalism. So, uh, you know, basically these regions are dominated by a predominant ethnic group. Um, You know, this is a bit of an oversimplification because, again, the diversity of Ethiopia is profound. uh, But that's, you know, basically how the constitution was structured. So we we mentioned earlier that uh, Ethiopian Prime Minister uh, Abiy Ahmed won the Nobel Prize in, in 2019 for the ending that decade long conflict. But now he's the, he really has been the architect of this this fight, this war in, in Tigray, in northern Ethiopia. What caused this new violence to come to a head in Ethiopia? I mean, what what is it that Abiy Ahmed was seeking when he decided that he wanted to destroy the TPLF? Well, the immediate cause of the war was a disputed election in the Tigray region in September of 2020. Hmm. Uh, Abiy sought to postpone regional elections, and the Tigray region insisted on going ahead. Now, I should say that this was only the latest incident in a power struggle between the TPLF, whose leaders had really dominated Ethiopian politics and government, for 25 years after the removal of the Derg, and Abiy Ahmed, who became prime minister in 2018 after anti-government protests, and then uh, his work to sideline the TPLF in his new governing coalition, uh, what became the Prosperity Party. But the September 2020 election dispute triggered a series of events, including an aid cutoff from the central government, 
that led the TPLF to fear an attack from the central government. And that fear reportedly prompted the TPLF to preemptively seize uh, certain military assets in Tigray, though the details of who did what first are still a bit murky even today. But it's fair to say the TPLF's fears of an attack were grounded in fact. Uh, Abiy invaded Tigray in November of 2020, uh, supported by his allies in Eritrea and also the Amar militia, who sought to reclaim western Tigray for the Amara region. So things moved very quickly within the first month. Uh, in fact, the Ethiopian government declared victory. Um, but also in that first month, if you were paying attention, there were the first reports of ethnic massacres of Tigrayan civilians. Uh, thousands of Tigrayan refugees fled across the border in Sudan, uh, 50,000 uh, in the first month or so. And we now know that, of course, Abiy's claim of a quick victory, like many of the other claims of the central government, uh, was not grounded in truth. Uh, while the government uh, forces marched into the capital of Tigray, Mekele, uh, the TPLF leaders and what became the Tigrayan Defense Forces literally headed for the hills. Uh, six months later, uh, in June, they came down from those hills and routed some of the best units of the Ethiopian military, forcing them to leave much of Tigray. Now, I should note here that the Tigrayan Defense Forces I referred to, or what is known as the TDF, included a number of former senior Tigrayan officers of the Ethiopian military, some of whom took part in the TPLF's war against the Derg. Uh, so they were an experienced and seasoned force, uh, really top-down. And I would say the men and women of the TDF are objectively incredibly tough fighters. Um, they defeated the Ethiopians in the summer of 2021. Uh, you may remember seeing pictures of thousands of captured Ethiopian soldiers at that time being marched through Mekele six months after Abi had claimed they had been defeated. Um, so just to fast forward, John, uh, the war continued for another 18 months. Uh, the TPLF marched south in the fall of 2021, seeking to break the blockade that had been established around them. Uh, they came within about 120 miles of Addis. Uh, they then withdrew uh, under a counterattack by the Ethiopian military late that year, which was supported by airstrikes and drones, importantly supplied by Turkey and the UAE, uh, who were supporting Abe. So last summer in 2022, after a brief ceasefire in the spring, the Ethiopian government, again allied with the Amara militia and the Eritreans, launched another uh, large offensive into Tigray. And after two years and perhaps a million, a million military and civilian casualties, a ceasefire agreement was concluded between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF uh, meeting in Pretoria in November of last year. <laughs> uh, we need to take just a, a short break. We'll come back to our discussions after we hear about a little bit more about the, the Cybersecurity Summit, our sponsors. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit series continues this summer with summits in Raleigh-Durham, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Detroit, Chicago, 
Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Kansas City. You'll hear from leaders in the field of cybersecurity, including business, government, infrastructure, military, homeland security, law enforcement, and more. For a list of dates and keynote speakers or to register, visit CybersecuritySummit.com. The Cybersecurity Summit Series, connecting senior-level executives with renowned information security experts and cutting-edge solution providers to protect today's enterprise. Visit CybersecuritySummit.com for details. And we're back with our guest, Steve Andreessen, from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, here on National Security This Week, and we're discussing the situation in Ethiopia. Uh, so, Steve, everything you've told us uh, in the first half of our show, it sounds, I mean, pretty horrific, uh, everything you've talked about, especially the one million dead from this conflict that really nobody has heard about in the Western media. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of our show the limited news coverage we've had in the United States dealing with this situation uh, can you tell us more about the the current humanitarian disaster that exists in northern Ethiopia? How, how bad are things right now in the region? What are you hearing? Well, one of the key provisions of the ceasefire agreement that was signed last November was that the Ethiopian government would, quote, expedite the provision of humanitarian aid and collaboration with humanitarian agencies, unquote, in Tigray. Uh, this after illegally blockading the region for two years, uh, using food as a weapon of war, hmm. a war crime. But one of the unintended consequences of the war, remember I spoke of the unintended consequences of this ill-considered decision in November of 2020, is that the combatants have corrupted the system uh, for distributing aid, uh, which had been long established uh, in Ethiopia, uh, basically diverting food aid for profit uh, or to feed the military, uh, not civilians uh, in need. So just this past June, the United States and the United Nations World Food Program suspended food aid across Ethiopia uh, while launching an investigation uh, into these diversions. Uh, I have to say internal memos uh, of these organizations point to the Ethiopian federal and regional officials as the culprits behind this scheme. So, John, we now have a situation where more than 20 million people in Ethiopia uh, who rely heavily on food assistance uh, are faced with the fact that the two largest donors, the United States and the World Food Program, have suspended their assistance across the country, including in Tigray. Uh, now, I should say it was reported this past Monday and Tuesday, uh, just in the last uh, 48 hours, actually, that the World Food Program has just started distributing wheat to about 100,000 people in Tigray at the end of July as part of what they call a new test program. Now, this has led, over the past few months, to extraordinary rates of malnutrition, including four million children, and really preventable deaths by starvation. So I should say, you know, as a bit of an editorial, while I'm strongly in favor of doing everything we can to hold the perpetrators of this war accountable for their actions, uh, in particular, there has to be transitional justice uh, for this war to truly end. Uh, this is one instance where we should, in the words of one expert, you know, make the bitter decision to work with the Ethiopian government and the authorities in Tigray 
to restore food aid delivery to Ethiopia. Let me tap into your expertise a little bit uh, on the food situation. So we know that the war in Ukraine has dramatically cut into you know, staples, uh, corn, wheat especially, coming out of both Ukraine and Russia. Uh, many places around the world in the what we refer to as the global south have been dramatically impacted by uh, rapid rising costs for food. I know something like 70% of the wheat that's imported into Egypt comes from Ukraine. Uh, I have a friend of mine who's who's actually at the American University in, in uh, Cairo, and he was commenting on, on the stress level that people were feeling trying to get bread uh, in Cairo because of the cost of, uh, the, of wheat had gone up. So the World Food Program in the United States providing aid to this region, is it, for, is it complicated by, by the war in Ukraine? Uh, well, absolutely. Certainly region-wide it is. Um, and this is one of the uh, issues that is now front and center because of the war in Ukraine and the breakdown of the agreement uh, that had allowed uh, shipments of grain from Ukrainian ports, as you probably know, John. The, the Black just, Sea Agreement. Exactly. Right? Just yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that agreement was not extended. And what we've now seen along the coast of Ukraine uh, is, uh, you know, destruction of the ports and infrastructure and actually an attack on some of the grain supplies um, and uncertainty as to the safety of shipping, uh, you know, in the Black Sea. And so all of this comes together along with, you know, a hot war in East Africa, you know, to exacerbate a situation where at one point in Tigray, you know, even without the war in Ukraine, uh, over 80 percent of the population was food insecure. As I say, now 20 million Ethiopians across, Ethiopians across Ethiopia you know, need assistance. Uh, so that's uh, one in six, roughly. Uh, roughly yeah. Wow. So I mean, you're seeing a situation that uh, uh, you know, in the absence of of U.S. and and other uh, UN provided assistance, uh, the decline in in uh, foodstuffs uh, from Ukraine uh, and from Russia, you know, is really having a dramatic impact. Mm. So the Tigray region of Ethiopia, unfortunately, isn't the only place where conflict conflict exists inside Ethiopia. We, you mentioned that uh, Amhara uh, militias were recruited by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and, and used in the initial assault into the Tigray region. And uh, let's talk a little bit more about what's happening with the... <laughs> with the Amhara region right now, just neighboring to the west uh, uh, of uh, Tigray? Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the Pandora's box that was opened by Abi uh, in marching into Tigray three years ago, uh, you know, the dramatic consequences of that. We're seeing that now in the Amhara region, which, as I said, is just south of Tigray, uh, Amhara being the second largest region in the country. Uh, three years ago, uh, Abi... Uh, allied with Amar militia known as Fano uh, in his march into Tigray. Uh, Fano occupied uh, western Tigray and conducted a campaign of ethnic cleansing uh, of Tigrayans there. Uh, that campaign, by the way, is still active and ongoing. Um, they still occupy the area uh, despite the November ceasefire, which uh, strongly implied their departure. Uh, and the return of Tigrayans. 
So now Abi wants to reassert his control over Fano, and they are resisting. Uh, just last week, in fact, uh, a six-month state of emergency was declared by the Ethiopian government uh, in Amara. This came after fighting between the Ethiopian military and Fano earlier in the week and an attempt by the government to disarm the militias uh, last spring. So when you look at the state of emergency, it also gives the government the authority to take a lot of the same steps that it took in Tigray. And, you know, perhaps even more ominously, if that isn't ominous enough, uh, the government's statement last Friday notes that the state of emergency could be imposed in other areas if needed. So this situation in Amara is emerging monster of sorts, um, of the government's making, uh, I should add. And what it underlines is that the forces of armed conflict that were unleashed in Tigray uh, almost three years ago uh, may not end there. There are other regions, by the way, including the Oromia region, which is the largest in Ethiopia, yeah. that also have active and armed insurgents. Uh, that have clashed with uh, Ethiopian uh, federal security uh, forces. Uh, there have recently been, in fact, more acts of political violence in Oromia than any other region of the country. So what I'm hearing from you is that Ethiopia is, might be on a precipice of a major civil war. Well, uh, I think they're on the... Uh, not only precipice, uh, they are in a continuation of a number of significant civil uprisings uh, against the central government. You know, one of the things Abiy Ahmed uh, has tried to do since assuming power in 2018 is to centralize power. Uh, and this after three decades of, as I say, you know, a federal uh, structure of power. Uh, and that's proving to be uh, very controversial. But I have to say, just like, you know, Vladimir Putin in Russia, uh, Abiy Ahmed has unleashed forces that, you know, to be frank, he may be sleeping with both eyes open uh, for the rest of his time in power. Yeah, and, with, re with regards to the Amhara region, I, I, just this morning, 4.03 a.m., as a matter of fact, uh, a reporter out of uh, Addis Ababa from Reuters uh, filed a story that said the Ethiopian National Defense Force had gained control just yesterday, Tuesday, of the center of Gondar, uh, Almara's second biggest city. Uh, so things are, might be going the way of the government forces for now in Amhara, but we'll have to see. Well, as I say, history shows that, you know, foolish decisions by leaders to start wars often lead to their demise. So we'll see how this situation plays out. Uh, I think the last chapter is... Uh, maybe months or years still yeah. down the road. Well, he's got at least three fairly large ethnic groups who are probably not pleased with him right now, uh, between Tigray, Amhara, and the Oromo region. What kind of foreign relations does Ethiopia have with other countries in East Africa? I mean, there's there's conflict just to, on the border, you know, for Ethiopia with Sudan. Uh, there's clearly some stress with uh, along the border with Eritrea. Uh, Somalia is not exactly uh, a place that's super peaceful right now. Um, South Sudan still has their own challenges. I mean, how, how does Abiy Ahmed sort of deal with the 
the conflict that's all around him as well as within his own country. Well, as you know, John, Ethiopia used to be a leader on the continent and had diplomatic missions around the world. Uh, the African Union headquarters is located in Addis, and Addis is perceived by many as, you know, quote, the capital of Africa, unquote. But here, too, the war has had consequences. Two years ago, Abiy announced that Ethiopia was closing about 30 embassies and consulates uh, to, quote, manage costs, unquote. Uh, and these costs are, of course, the extraordinary costs imposed by the war in Tigray. Um, and it really underlines how the war has disrupted the Ethiopian economy, uh, which prior to Abiy, as you said at the outset of the program, John, uh, was one of the fastest growing in Africa. So today, inflation has really soared. Uh, the country's foreign exchange reserves uh, have shrunk. These are the kinds of actions you see, you know, when a state is gripped by conflict. Now, Actually, Ethiopia is now applying to membership in the BRICS group of nations, <laughs> that is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, uh, perhaps as a means of achieving greater outside support and attracting more foreign investment, and also, again, speaking frankly, for the leaders to try and launder their international reputation. Um, closer to home, uh, the war has also prevented the government from engaging in the kind of sustained diplomacy necessary to manage, uh, what are some significant issues with its neighbors? Uh, this includes the filling of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or the GERD, uh, which is now 90% complete. Uh, this is a project that was begun under the uh, administration of Mellis. Uh, so uh, it has been ongoing for over a decade, and it's a significant point of dispute. Uh, and conversation uh, with both Egypt and Sudan. So it could also still turn into a significant uh, point of conflict. It's it's my understanding that the GERD, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, is absolutely massive. Is that right? It is indeed. And in fact, uh, of course, situated on the Nile. Uh, the Blue Nile. Exactly. is going to control water resources that, again, widely impact uh, not just Ethiopia, uh, but East Africa. And uh, those countries who really rely on the Nile uh, for irrigation uh, and water supplies are understandably nervous about the implications of having that water flow controlled uh, somewhere else. Yeah, we, we've actually done a few shows here on National Security this week talking about the importance of uh, the Nile River Basin, both the White Nile and the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile starts in the Ethiopian highlands. Uh, the fact that the Ethiopian government chose to build the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam uh, was, was problematic, uh, shall we say, for international relations between Ethiopia and Sudan. Uh, in, in the capital of Sudan, Khartoum, is where the White Nile and the Blue Nile come together, and something like 75% of the water of the main Nile River comes from the Blue Nile uh, and then flows north uh, through Egypt. And life in Egypt absolutely uh, depends on the supply of water from the Nile. So the Egyptian government under Sisi is, is deeply concerned about the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. And now we're talking in this show today about the instability that exists in Ethiopia where that dam begins, where it's controlled 
this does not bode well for the entire region. Well, and no matter what your view of the GERD project, uh, and there's plenty to be said about it that is positive, yeah. uh, managing these issues, because it really is a regional issue, as you note, you know, requires the kind of focused diplomacy that a country at war with itself you know, has a difficult time doing. Yeah, and, and so on the good side, the GERD will provide tremendous electrical uh, power resources for the region and clean energy with hydroelectric. Yeah. So let's uh, let's shift over uh, to the United—actually, I should just say, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Steve Andreessen from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, and we're discussing the situation in East Africa and really focusing in on Ethiopia. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Steve, you started out our conversation today kind of hammering uh, the, the last two U.S. administrations, both the Trump administration and, and the current Biden administration. So let's take a look at the, the U.S. role in this. What, what is it about the situation in Ethiopia that American national security professionals writ large are, are sort of missing? Is, is America taking the right actions? Are there, are there other things America could or should do right now to help bring an end to hostilities across the entire region? Is there anything we can do? Uh, how would you use the American tools of national power to address this? Well, as I said earlier, it really saddens me to say that U.S. policy has been characterized by, I think, indifference and missed opportunities. First, the Trump administration, as I say, really had zero interest in Africa. And when Abiy attacked Tigray on the day of the U.S. presidential election, our government was really deep into dysfunction and chaos. Uh, second, the Biden administration really failed to use the transition between November uh, 2020 and the inaugural to prioritize and plan for ending the war in Tigray. Uh, it would be months before the first of three special envoys was appointed by Biden uh, to deal with this issue. Uh, and the president and his administration really never made the war in Tigray a front burner issue. Uh, as a result, we failed to use the tools we had uh, to at least try and pressure Abiy Ahmed to end the war. And we watched as literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of combatants and civilians were killed and millions displaced from their homes. Uh, Tigrayans were ethnically cleansed from western Tigray. Women were raped. Uh, and a two-year blockade of Tigray would starve, as I said, millions of people uh, and starve hospitals of medicines and supplies. At one point, as I say, over 80% of the population was food insecure. So this is not, John, a proud chapter uh, of U.S. national security policy, uh, or for that matter, the international community. I mean, they collectively made a conscious choice not to do all that they could, and in fact did much less. So it's very hard to look to Grians here in the eye. Uh, I say this, by the way, not to absolve the parties to the conflict of their responsibility for initiating and prosecuting the war. They are responsible, and they should be held accountable. But we must also look in the mirror and ask, you know, how could the international community and international organizations, including the African Union, the European Union, and the United Nations, allow such a war to continue without taking steps to end it? Now, I will say on a more positive note, the U.S. played a role in helping the African Union uh, as I say, which was late to the game, uh, to say the least, in brokering the ceasefire that was negotiated between the Ethiopian government and Tigray in November of 2022. And 
after finally imposing some limited sanctions on the Ethiopian government, uh, those U.S. sanctions, at least for now, remain in place. Uh, I should say I'd still like to see more targeted sanctions on the decision-makers who started and prosecuted this war. And I don't think we should agree to restart normal bilateral relations with Addis until the peace agreement is effectively implemented. Amara and Eritrean forces have withdrawn from Tigray, and an international process of justice and accountability is not in place. I mean, the bottom line, John, and you and I have talked about this, if you give total impunity to war criminals, they will continue to commit crimes against humanity, whether in war or not. So let me, let me, uh, let me pivot to this question, because you sat on uh, the National Security Council staff and you thought long and hard every single day about really critical strategic challenges. What, what, what is the American national security interest in seeing Ethiopia stabilize? As I say, uh, Ethiopia has been and needs to be an economic engine and a leader for Africa. And uh, this is a country, of course, uh, that since 1991, uh, not without difficulty, and not without, uh, by the way, uh, some uh, more than questionable human rights practices uh, by the uh, administration uh, that emerged after the removal of the Derg, nevertheless uh, was making progress uh, both on the leadership track and the economic track. Uh, it's in the U.S. national interest uh, for Ethiopia to get back on track. Uh, and we need to do that in the context of managing what are also priority interests in terms of, uh, how should I say, not only resisting but holding to account regimes that participate in war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. Uh, we were very quick out of the box in Ukraine uh, to rightly, by the way, charge President Putin and Russian authorities with exactly those crimes. Uh, there's more than enough evidence uh, that uh, senior leaders uh, in Ethiopia uh, and their allies, uh, you know, participated in these activities also. So we need to learn how to square the circle, and we need to work to do so. Yeah, if you look at a, if anybody's listening right now, if they happen to be looking on a map of the world, uh, take a look at Ethiopia, and you and you look at the countries all around the region. Uh, we mentioned that Eritrea is under control of a of a strong man, has been since they gained independence. Sudan is in the middle of a civil war. Uh, South Sudan has been having serious civil strife in their region. Uh, Somalia continues to battle the Al Shabaab uh, uh, Salafist Jihadi movement. The only real stable countries that are on the borders are Kenya to the south, and Kenya's had some political upheaval at times, but it's mostly pretty stable, and Djibouti, uh, where there's a fairly large base, U.S. base there, Camp Lemonnier, and the Chinese have a base there now as well. So it's from a strategic—and Djibouti controls the entrance in and out of the Red Sea, uh, which is a pretty critical uh, strategic choke point. Uh, so from a, from a strategic perspective, it is important to American national security interests to try and figure out a way to stabilize that region of the world. Absolutely. So is there any good news coming out of this region right now in your, in your view? Well, in a word, 
resilience. Uh, The people of Tigray and really across Ethiopia are incredibly skilled and hardworking. Amazing people, uh, really, with an amazing history, including some of the earliest churches in Christian history that are found in Tigray. Their leaders, sadly, have failed them yet again, uh, and their wives, sons, and daughters across Ethiopia—excuse me, across Ethiopia—have really paid the price for that failure. Um, uh, sadly, uh, over the past three years, an incredibly decent, talented, and vibrant citizenry. Uh, has been horrifically warped and terrorized in ways that will be, I think, the lasting legacy of this conflict. But they are resilient in their love for their families uh, and for a more peaceful future. And I believe that spirit will prevail. And we have about six minutes left in the show today. This time, I just am amazed how fast this show goes by every every week. What else should people know about Ethiopia and Tigray or or the East African region in general? What didn't I ask you to, about today that I that I should have asked you? Well, John, I'd like your listeners to know that they can do something. Uh, two things I'd note briefly, but. Uh, by far not the only two things. Uh, First, there are private, non-governmental organizations that are still working in parts of Tigray and Ethiopia uh, who can use uh, your listeners' support. Uh, Doctors Without Borders, for example. Uh, Two years ago, uh, three of their colleagues were murdered in Tigray. Uh, An investigation, by the way, the Ethiopian government continues to drag its feet on. But the organization continues to provide assistance at clinics, including pregnant women uh, and new mothers who are uh, severely malnourished. Uh, So this is vital work. Um, I'd also mention again John Prendergast's organization, The Century, uh, who's working to identify leaders and groups who profit from these conflicts across large parts of Africa and shut off their funding. The second thing I'd recommend to your listeners is to get in touch with your member of Congress and our two senators here in Minnesota and urge that food aid be resumed to those countries most at risk, even before we sort out all of the issues with the Ethiopian aid program. Uh, This is really an acute crisis, and we need to save lives now. So, Steve Andreessen, thank you so much for joining us on National Security this week. I, what, what courses are you going to be teaching at, at the Humphrey School this year? Well, I'll be teaching my National Security Policy course during the fall semester, starting in September. Uh, then in the spring semester, I teach a seminar on crisis management in foreign affairs. I, and I know for a fact that those are both wildly popular <laughs> courses. So, <laughs> Uh, do you have any publications that you'd like to point out to our listeners, articles maybe that you've written, uh, anything related to Ethiopia that might further educate all of us? I, I have right here in front of me uh, two uh, opinion pieces that uh, that you wrote for the Star Tribune, uh, one in August of 21 and the other uh, just in April of, uh, of 22. Well, for those of your listeners who are interested in U.S. national security policy, I actually have a 30-page syllabus okay. <laughs> that's available online at the Humphrey School. Uh, includes a number of readings related to current threats and policies facing the United States today, including Ethiopia, which has also been featured in my crisis management seminar. Uh, you'll find those two opinion pieces I've done on Tigray for the Star Tribune. And and I, I should give a shout-out to the two editors there, Doug Tice and David Banks, uh, who found space to publish. Um, but there's lots of short 
punchy material on my syllabus, including news articles and opinion pieces and some longer essays. So it's a good mix to take with you up to the lake in August as you're finishing the summer. <laughs> Steve Anderson, thank you so much for, for joining us today here on National Security This Week. I, I really do appreciate your time and making the drive down from the cities to, to join us here uh, in studio in Northfield. Again, it's a pleasure to be here. And John, I, I want to say, uh, when I walked out of the studio in March, uh, you said and committed to do a show on Tigray, and uh, you were good to your word, and I appreciate your taking the time to do it. Well, this is, I mean, the, the importance of this show, I, I think, uh, for, for me personally, is about educating people about these, these areas of the world that we really don't hear about in the, in the mainstream media discussions. Uh, so having someone with your expertise who can come in and educate us about this situation in Ethiopia and, and East Africa in general uh, makes this show worthwhile for me every single week. It's worth doing. Thank you, John. And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish your week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. If you have a passion for beauty, turn it into a career at the Minnesota School of Beauty in Lakeville. They can teach you everything you need to know about hair, skin, nails, and makeup. If you're a high school senior, you can start your career in cosmetology before you graduate. With their rolling curriculum, you can start at any time. Check out their new website at mnschoolofbeauty.com. 